Today's broadcast of Technovation is being recorded in front of a live audience. For most of you, of course, uh, probably know who, who uh, General Stanley McChrystal is, but I'll take a quick moment and, and uh, provide a bit of a, an introduction. Uh, so Stan, and it always makes me a little bit uh, uh, feel a little strange to just simply call him Stan, but he's always been very kind to insist that that be the case. Uh, Stan is a retired four-star general, uh, former commander of U.S. and International Security Assistance Forces in Afghanistan, and the former commander of the, of the nation's premier military counterterrorism force, JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command. We served our country uh, for many decades, uh, something that, that uh, I'm sure we're all very grateful for. Thank you uh, for your service, Stan. We so greatly appreciate it. And uh, in, for the past 11 years has run the McChrystal Group, uh, obviously an eponymous, uh, eponymously named firm delivering innovative leadership solutions to businesses globally. And he's also an author of multiple best-selling books. He was very kind to, to sit for interviews uh, with me after a team of teams and leaders. And we'll certainly get into a bit about his latest book, Risk, A User's Guide, through this conversation as well. I'm also honored to say that he uh, wrote the foreword to my latest book as well. But Stan, welcome. Great to see you as always. I really appreciate you taking time with us today. You know, here's a lesson for everybody. Get a friend to introduce you. It always comes across better. <laughs> And now a quick word from our sponsor, Cisco, and the company's chief information officer, Jackie Gouchelar. As we enter a time of hybrid work environments, Jackie wanted to take a moment to share how companies can stay ahead of this emerging trend and make informed decisions on the future of work. Jackie, over to you. Hi, this is Jackie Gouchelar, SVP and CIO of Cisco. Today, we're at a unique time in history with the ability to redefine work. Work is no longer where you go. It's what you do and how you do it and it is powered by the convergence of people, technology, and places. It's permanently reshaping expectations of both employees and employers alike. To navigate this changing landscape, Cisco's Hybrid Work Index can help you make informed decisions by providing global insights on people's preferences, habits, and technology use in the era of hybrid work. It's based on millions of global data points and insights to help you win the war for talent, accelerate your innovation, and enhance business safety and security. Search Cisco Hybrid Work Index to learn more. Thanks, Jackie. And now on to our broadcast. Well, so um, I, I wanted to ask you as a, as a starting point, getting into some of the, the themes from your book, Risk, A User's Guide. Uh, as a military man who spent years in the theater of war, uh, and as you grew in seniority, uh, became a, a wanted man by your enemies, uh, you have a relationship with risk a little bit different from most of us on this call. Um, but you mentioned, actually, as somebody who had reason to think about this for so long across your life, that you had a misconception as to what it was. Can you talk a bit about what you originally thought uh, risk entailed and what you've come to believe uh, is really constitutes uh, risk in evaluating it, please? Yeah, absolutely, Peter. And thanks for having me. And thanks, everybody, for joining. You know, like many of us, I spent a lifetime being taught risk by people who understood it, getting a chance to practice it. And you would think that after a fair amount of time that we would all sort of master it. We would, we would have processes, mental, or in our organizations that do it. And I always thought of risk as the intersection between the probability of something happening and the consequences of that action if it does happen. So you think if I get up on the roof, what's the probability I'll fall off? And if I fall off, how bad am I gonna get hurt? And yet when I, when I stepped back after all that training and all the scholarship that's in our society on risk, so many books and things like that, if you really look at our track record dealing with risk, it's not very good, it's not very impressive. And my own experience is exactly the same thing. Even though we would do a lot of things to, to try to measure or predict risk, and in many cases to avoid or mitigate it, you know, time and again, we ran into things and we would come away with excuses that said, well, that was a completely unexpected thing. And so it swept our feet out from under the wrist. And I think that's true sort of society wide. So about two years ago, Two and a half years ago, I said, I'm going to try to get my mind around why do we have all of this expertise in risk and yet have such a bad track record with it, me included. So the title of our book, Risk or User's Guide, is a sort of an ambitious way of saying, 
this is a book on risk for everyone who uses risk, which is all of us. And it really tries to address the disconnect between the fact we, we theoretically know what we're doing and yet we don't do it very well. And just as we started the book, literally, we decided to write the book in the late summer uh, of 2019. I got a young lady to work with me who worked in McChrystal Group, really bright young person, not as a, a researcher or an assistant, but as a co-author because I wanted a different uh, demographic and age and gender and all to, to come at it differently. COVID-19 appeared. And COVID-19 not only affected the writing process, but it really became a vehicle in the, in the study of risk because, not to bore you because we've all lived it, but if you think about COVID-19, it's a novel coronavirus, but it's not novel at all. Coronaviruses come all the time. And so we know that they come. And so it's entirely predictable, maybe not that virus in that moment, but we know they come. Second, we know what to do about it. We have a great store of experience with public health. And we've been through big pandemics and small ones. So there's a great set of experiences. In this particular case, we also got the gift of vaccines produced faster than any time in human history. So if you line those things up, we know it's coming, we know what to do about it, and we got this absolute uh, miracle in producing vaccines. We ought to be celebrating now. It should have been something we went through like a toll booth and no big deal. Because COVID-19 is not that challenging a coronavirus, actually, compared to, to many things. And yet, that's not the outcome. We actually have had extraordinary pain in our nation and across the world. So why was that? And so we used that as one of our case studies. And we, we really came away with a somewhat depressing conclusion that the greatest risk to us is actually us. It's our unwillingness or our inability to do the things necessary to minimize that. And in the process, we came up with a different way of sort of defining risk. I used to think, as I mentioned, that probability and consequences. Now I think of it as threats and vulnerabilities in almost a mathematical sense. If you say threat times vulnerability equals risk, and then you say, well, if, if I can do away with all the threats out there, then my risk is zero because anything times zero is zero. But I can't. Not very good at that. Not very good at predicting. I'm certainly not very good at completely doing away with them and never will be. But then you look at vulnerabilities. You say, well, maybe I can't draw my vulnerabilities down to zero, but I do have agency over those. I can do a lot of things that make me less vulnerable to the kinds of threats that emerge. So suddenly, while I can't draw it to zero, I have the ability to do something about it. And that's really where we, we ended up in the book. And we didn't know this when we started studying it. We ended up with the idea that risk is not something you spend your lifetime worrying about or ducking. It's something that you look at the basics in your organization and yourself, and you become surprisingly less vulnerable to the kinds of things that appear. You also talk really and write very compellingly, Stan, about our own immune system and how our bodies actually are, are calculating risks and learning all along. And you draw an analogy from that in, into uh, developing a risk immune system uh, with 10 risk control factors that you describe. Talk a bit about that analogy and how that helped you sure. sort of um, define your own thought process about how we might get better at uh, factoring in the aspects of risk that are going to be meaningful. Absolutely. Uh, about eight or nine years ago, a young Yale immunologist came to my office up there where I teach and said that she wanted to talk about counterinsurgency. And I said, what are you talking about? She says, I think counterinsurgency is like the human immune system. And I said, what do you know about counterinsurgency? She said, nothing. And I said, what do you, I know nothing about the human immune system. So we taught each other. We produced, in fact, a presentation. And in doing that, I learned just enough about the human immune system to be dangerous. And if I told you right now, that every day you ingest about 10,000 microorganisms 
you go, okay, got that. But if I reworded that and I said, you ingest 10,000 threats, any one of which could make you sick or kill you, suddenly I might have your attention. And yet you don't get up every morning going, I hope my human immune system works today. Because it does. We take it for granted. It's this miracle system that detects the threats that come to us. It assesses each threat. It responds to them, normally destroying them. And then it learns in the process so it's more efficient next time. And it just does this constantly. And it's only when our human immune system gets weakened or damaged completely that it becomes really dangerous for us. So for example, you probably know nobody ever died of HIV AIDS. It just doesn't do it. What happens is your immune system is weakened and suddenly a host of other things that otherwise don't bother most humans become potentially fatal. And so if you think about this human immune system as this extraordinary capacity we have to deal with threats, not to avoid them, but to deal with them, now you think about, I'm going to talk about organizations, although this actually applies to individuals as well. We have the equivalent of a risk immune system. We have the ability to deal with threats that come at us. And as we've defined it in the book, we have 10 factors, risk control factors, communication, narrative, action, timing, diversity, bias, leadership. Uh, a number of things that form a system that all operate, and you don't have to be perfect in all of those, but what you have to do is have a functioning system so that as threats arise, the organization has the ability to detect, assess, respond, and learn in that process. And so if we apply that model into any number of case studies or experiences we've had in life it proves a pretty good way to get our minds around what we can do about risk as opposed to just worrying. And Stan, why, why do you suppose we are so uh, poor, naturally at least, at calculating risk? Uh, is it is it a, a, a tendency to think that, um, you know, think with two, two uh, sort of a rosy colored glasses on, uh, not to evaluate sort of the existential issues that may, may surround us? Um, what is it? What's your own diagnosis about uh, why we as humans don't naturally uh, contemplate this? Yeah, I think there are a number of factors. I think one of them is that we're lazy. And so one of the things we can do about it, for example, I would tell you that if you think of pretty commonly discussed risks, a natural disaster, a financial crisis, a pandemic, a war, if I describe all of those and you, and you might say, well, what do we do about them? Each case is starkly different. I would tell you that in each case, about 85% of what we do is the same. Meaning when you have a threat like that, you have to communicate effectively across an organization so you can understand what's happening and, and deal with it. You have to have a clear narrative. You have to align an understanding of what you're trying to do and who you are as an organization. You have to be able to overcome the inertia that often freezes us in place or keeps us doing what we've always been doing and not change. We've got to bring in diversity of perspectives, not diversity of gender or age or something, but diversity of perspectives so that we can deal with it with a full spectrum. Look, we've got to be able to deal with the biases which we have, not to do away with them because you can't, but to understand them and account for them. We've got to be able to get the timing on what we do right. We've got to be able to have the kind of leadership that pulls all this together. Now, all of those things, again, they're not 10 pistons that have to be firing perfectly. But what they do is they define the, the health of the organization, the resilience. And therefore, when the threats that inevitably come, we're not thrown back on our heels. Instead, we've got the core of things right. And those unique actions we have to take that are special for any particular or different kind of crisis, we can focus on. But if we're trying to fix the basics when we have a different crisis, we're always swinging late at the pitch. 
are we bad at calculating risk or do we not agree on the appropriate risk appetite, which begs the question where there are differences. Uh, if you have a higher risk tolerance than I have and we work in the same organization, what's the process then to get on the same page? I think it's both of those are true. I think we define risk very poorly. In many cases, you'll find that people will look at risk from their different perspectives and they will absolutely see something very differently. So for example, if it's a business, you might have the marketing person seeing the risk in reputational or branding. You might have the finance person saying, if we spend too much, it'll have a problem here. The HR says, what's well, going to do for our ability to retain talent? And all of those can be valid. But if you look at it starkly differently and you're all trying to solve for a different challenge, then your ability to deal with it is pretty weak. I would say in many cases, if you take an international geopolitical risk, often we'll say, what is the risk in this particular action we take? And we'll say, well, the action could be risk to individuals involved, physical risk, something like that could be financial. And yet if you step back and the much greater risk is on failing or not acting, this is the one I see most often. There will be people, if you say, we need to do something, and people say, well, there's risk in this and this. And then you look at the risk of inaction and letting it happen, then you've got two people making passionate arguments that miss it completely. And, and often we don't act when we should. An area that you and I certainly align on is this notion of adaptability. I refer to it as nimbleness, uh, but the necessity and is one of the factors that you call out in, in terms of uh, this the, the risk control factors. Talk about, you, you have a number of really interesting anecdotes uh, from Hurricane Katrina, uh, to, to other sorts of ways in which our adaptability, um, you know, become uh, become issues, our, our inability to to adapt uh, become issues, and in many cases, actually, uh, uh, the the pandemic has underscored this necessity, and and frankly, has shown which organizations are best at adapting during trying and in some cases unprecedented times. Talk a bit about that factor in particular, if you would, Sam. Sure. Um, one of the examples we use for adaptability is a guy named Dick Fosbury. And some of you may remember 1968, the Mexico City Olympics, and this skinny guy is standing there in two different color shoes. And then he runs toward the high bar and throws himself over backwards. And he lands and the crowd is laughing. They think it's hilarious. And they laugh so hard, they didn't realize he just won. Won the gold medal, set a world record. And we step back at Dick Fosbury and we say, well, here's just a different kind of guy who does something different. That's not at all what it was. He was a 20-year-old engineering student from the University of Oregon who had been jumping for years and studied it very deeply. And he came to the conclusion that if you threw yourself ever backwards, you could actually keep your center of gravity below the height of the bar and just roll over the bar. And you say, well, why didn't somebody do it 10 or 15 years before that? The answer is because they couldn't. Earlier, the crash or landing area was just sand, or they started putting little pellets of uh, rubber. But the reality is, if you went over backwards and landed on the back of your neck, your spine, you're going to break it. So it's just not an option. Then by 1968, they, did, they brought in the big, thick crash pads suddenly conditions allowed somebody to land on the back of their neck without breaking it. And so suddenly you have conditions which allowed adaptability, but you had to marry that with somebody who had the willingness to adapt, was willing to accept some risk in that. If you, if you expand that to organizations, how often do we see in business where either a new startup or one organization will suddenly do things differently? It'll just take off with effectiveness. And we wonder why didn't everybody else do that? Maybe there have been a period of times when they didn't have the conditions when they could, but then when the conditions changed, they didn't have the mental ability or the, the moral ability or the uh, this, this sense of courage to take on that kind of thing. Yeah, very interesting, Stan. I, and I, I wanted to talk about also the 
you talk about the American narrative. You tell this great story about Vice President Nixon, which I'll have you uh, tell again, if you don't mind here. And the necessity to ensure that uh, our narratives as a country, as individuals, align with our values and that we not compromise uh, on, on those. Uh, talk a bit about that, that necessity for that alignment. Sure. sure. There's the, the idea of narrative, we sometimes throw the word out. We don't really know what we're talking about. What I would say is narrative is what we say about ourselves. And it defines how we behave because it becomes who we think we are or who we would like to be. In 1957, then Vice President Richard Nixon was in Ghana, in Africa, and he is there to celebrate Independence Day. And of course, the United States represents the idea of independence and rights for people and is not a colonial power. And so after the, the ceremony, he's walking around just sort of talking to people and he sees a, a, a black man and he walks up to him and he's trying to make conversation as only Richard Nixon could and said, so how does it feel to be free? And the guy looked at him and said, I wouldn't know. I'm from Alabama. And if you step back, it's like slap. But it, it actually says more than that, because in reality, what Nixon was trying to reflect was the American narrative, what we want to think of ourselves as opportunity, freedom and whatnot. And what the man was reminding him that's not really the reality of America. It is at best incomplete. There's a, there's a story about Google, and we covered the, the book about Project Maven. And you remember, Google was founded, and then they decided, well, we need a motto. And somebody said, don't be evil. And at first, they didn't take it seriously. They said, no, nah, that's, that's not a good motto. And then it kind of took. It was simple, it was easy to understand. And so they started putting it up on walls in the headquarters and Googlers, you know, employees started identifying with don't be evil. That seems pretty straightforward. Then they got the opportunity to work with the Department of Defense using artificial intelligence to process information that was being picked up by unmanned aerial vehicles. And this Project Maven, in my mind, was absolutely a legitimate thing to do for the government that, that needs to do it. But in the perception of many Google employees, it was evil. So now we have a company saying, don't be evil, and a perception by part of the workforce that says, we are being evil. And it wasn't something they could just get everybody together and explain. In fact, it turned out to be quite a crisis inside Google. But the real learning, the takeaway there is, if you have a gap between what you say and what you actually do, you really create a tremendous amount of danger there. So the power of narrative is extraordinarily important for people to understand. One last point on it, because this is near and dear to me. A few years ago, the United States Army started using a, a new slogan, and it said, what's your warrior? And they started trying to lure people into the service by using the term warrior. You can be a warrior, but that can be very different. One warrior can be working on computers. One can be doing something else. The problem with that word, from my standpoint, is it's got sort of a mixed history. If When I think of soldiers, I think of people who operate under the rule of law with discipline, under a chain of command that does things very much aligned with the nation's guidance. When I think of the word warrior, I think of sort of that, but I also think more free. You know, I almost think of the potential for barbarians and things like that who operate outside uh, the law or step outside the law. And so I think it's problematic that the army grabs that because particularly when you have things like some war criminals that President Trump uh, pardoned, you start to send a message that maybe what we want is different from what I think the army has to have, which is a disciplined force uh, controlled by the rule of law. And so it, it just gets to subtle things on, on narrative that I think needs to be in the front of our minds. When you talk, Stan, about and write about uh, 
that many of us take for granted that America is always going to be this great power. It was when we were born and it has been throughout our lives, but it has to be something that we re-earn uh, and continue to try to live up to the 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 our founding documents, even if as the, at the point at which they were written, they weren't entirely the reality of what, what was happening in, in the United States. Um, talk, talk a bit about your perspectives there as well, if you would. Yeah, Th- this is something that I think is uh, incredibly important for us. We we tend to homogenize our history to a degree, and we think of the Constitution, thirty five hundred words, but most of us haven't read it since high school or don't read it very often. We tend to think of emancipation as having occurred when Abraham Lincoln declared it at the beginning of 1863. And in fact, we know that it only partially occurred then and it has been halting ever since. So there are a number of things in our history that have been more difficult or at least have many more perspectives than we sometimes do. And yet we step back and we go, we're an exceptional country. Exceptional means different. And I think the implication is better. You know, we are exceptional. Why? Because we're Americans. Okay. Well, what about Americans is exceptional. And we we clearly want to believe that. And I, I don't think that trying to be exceptional is a bad thing. But Telling yourself you're exceptional because you were born as an American or naturalized an American and gone, you're exceptional, is very dangerous because you start to think that that's the defining thing, the fact that you're an American. In fact, special operations where I spent my career in the military, we had a lot of people come into special operations. They thought the day they got in there that they were special. And I would say, no, we're only special if we perform to a level that is associated with what we have to be. You know, just because you put a tab or beret or some other uh, accoutrement on your uniform, that doesn't make you special. It is your conduct, your behavior, your performance that makes you special. And so I think that when I think about the United States, I think it's a test every day. You know, we may have been exceptional yesterday or last year or 10 years ago, but whether we're exceptional is what we do today. And so I think that as a mindset, I think a nation has got to almost uh, admit that it's a, it's a work in progress constantly. And so what one generation earns for the next generation is only the opportunity to be something. It's not the guarantee of it. Let me stop there. I'm preaching now. I apologize. Not at least, not at least. A great, great overview. Um, Stan, another audience member has asked, the risk planning that we all do as leaders and that you did as a commander of troops is different in a headquarters environment versus what military veterans may refer to as the fog of battle and the ambiguity associated with that. Do you build that ambiguity into your planning? That's a great uh, case. I'm going to give you a description. I mentioned I grew up in special operations and it was all really the modern special operations in the United States were born after the failure of the Iran rescue mission in 1980. And so Joint Special Operations Command, the jewel in the crown of our special operations now, was a fix to the to the effort that was an ad hoc effort to do a complicated mission that failed. The problem with JSOC, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. I ended up commanding it. I love it. But it because it was formed on the basis of failure, At its heart, it never wanted to fail again. And so it never wanted to fail the nation. So inside the processes, procedures were always these things to mitigate risk to zero. And when I took over command command of it in 2003, what I found was we put in all of these requirements in. If you were going to do an operation, you had to have a backup gunship, you had to have backup helicopters, you had backup this and all this stuff. And essentially what you've done is you've priced yourself out of being able to do a vast majority of operations. And so you did that with good intentions. People, you know, there'd be an experience with this. No, we got to have X. And you may have seen it in, in organizations you've been in before where people just pile on requirements because they don't want that some specific problem never happen again. And you become so limited and so sluggish, you've created a, a fence around the organization, which becomes an excuse for not doing stuff. And 
each of those rules is often put in by sometimes well-intentioned decision makers. Sometimes it's them trying to reduce their own risk of being responsible for a failure. You know, they covered their butt. In Afghanistan, we were directed that every soldier had to wear every piece of the body armor that was issued to them when they left a post. And okay, all right, somebody back in the United States said everybody should wear everything. That, that seems logical. But if you try walking in the mountains of Afghanistan to 12,000 feet wearing all that crap, it's impossible. And so we put subordinate leaders in the position of disobeying orders to operate correctly, to actually reduce the risk to their people. And so what, what we have there is a case of well-intentioned things start to build up um, our inability to do things in the most effective way. And so what, what we lose is we lose focus on what the real risk is or what the, the greatest risk is. You know, in I mentioned this in the book, but it, I went through it in my, uh, my time in peacetime training in the Army. The way to train soldiers for combat is to have very realistic training that's physically grueling, uses live fire, live ammunition. So there's some potential danger in it. And every once in a while, somebody gets shot in training, and that's tragic, particularly if they died. But there was great pressure from the bureaucracy not to have any training accidents. So what would happen is commanders would start to not do that training because it reduced their personal risk as a leader getting being responsible for something going wrong. And instead, what they're doing is they're transferring that risk to whoever's leading that unit in combat. Because when you get on the battlefield, you're not going to be as good. Those are insidious things we see in so many different uh, instances that are the kind of things that I think we need to, to uh, be focused on. It also calls to mind a little bit, Stan, one of the great lessons of your fantastic book, Team of Teams, is the necessity for a leader, whether a general or a C-suite executive, uh, to think less as a chess master and more as a gardener. And I, I think I'm hearing you say that even from a risk perspective, you need to be operating under the same sorts of principles, uh, that you need to arm your, your staff, your team with the necessary ingredients such that when they are, you know, in, in their various theaters, whatever, whatever uh, uh, form that may take in the different businesses represented here or in a military setting, that they, they have that uh, ability to draw upon that and not simply wait for the order to come down from somebody senior to them. That is so true. But, but this is harder than it sounds. We can, in this conversation, say this, but how often does a CEO go on CNBC or somewhere and they ask some very detailed question and people expect the CEO to know it? And so typically the CEO does know it. And the, the problem with that is the CEO shouldn't know it. The CEO should be focused on other things and somebody down in the organization ought to know it and deal with it. Um, that the safest thing in our minds is to maintain absolute control over things because we can make sure nobody steps out of line and whatnot. And we have enough technology now with cell phones and whatnot. We can connect everybody all the time. If they want to come, in fact, if your subordinates think they have to come to you for approval to do almost everything, they have the technology to reach you now. And so the reality is they can do that. The problem is you won't get much done. And you won't even know what you're not getting done because opportunities lost don't self-identify. And so what I found in the counter-terrorist fight, JSOC's uh, culture was not to have failure. So when I took over, the commanding general approved every operation, everyone. And I started doing that when I first took over. And they suddenly realized I became one of the limiting factors and tremendously. And I'm not that much value add to most of those decisions. So we pushed it down. I'm still responsible. So now I've got a little risk. I'm letting people junior to me make decisions for which I'm ultimately accountable. But if I want to get a lot of things done, I got to do that. And what I found is they don't make any more mistakes than I would make if I was making the decision because they're closer to the problem, they understand it, and they've got a sense of ownership because we've given them responsibility. But yet it takes organizational courage to push that down. 
Um, and every time you get burned, the temptation is to pull it back up. I don't know how many of you have been in organizations where somebody cheats on a travel claim. And then a week later, someone says, from now on, the CFO has got to approve every request to do any travel. And you just kind of shake your head. And what you can't measure is all the travel that was necessary that doesn't occur. Great point. I would love to get some of your perspectives, um, you know, at least as of where things stand now uh, in the war in Ukraine, on the war in Ukraine, if you don't mind, Stan. Uh, you mentioned at a conference we both attended last week that, of course, you don't know how this is all going to end up. But at least as of then, you mentioned in some ways uh, Zelensky and Ukraine has already won, uh, just given some of the, some of what has happened and the progress that they have made uh, against what would seem to be a what is clearly in terms of numbers and 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 uh, wherewithal uh, a formidable competitor uh, in Russia. Maybe talk a bit about where now, just a you know, couple weeks in, uh, where how you're analyzing things uh, from your perspective. Yeah, let me uh, let me start by saying, everybody, I. I don't know any more than most of you. I mean, I've got my perspective. So discount what I say appropriately. Um, first off, in the big picture, I think this is an inflection point in history that is going to be every bit as big a deal as the fall of the Berlin Wall. I think when the Berlin Wall fell in 89, we entered a period of history that essentially went for 30 plus years that was different than most other eras. There was the Cold War before that, and then before that, great power politics. For the last 30-some years, we've had globalization. We really haven't had any major power conflicts or even serious threat of them. And that is an aberration. And I think that that period is now over. So we're entering a new era in which there's going to be a lot of great power competition. You can call it a Cold War if you want. It's going to look and feel a lot like a Cold War. And it's going to be extraordinarily dangerous because not only do we have nuclear weapons with cyber and other things, it's potentially even more lethal. And we've got more actors with access to those. So non-state actors can, can make it even more confusing by jumping in there. So I think this inflection point is amazingly important. And I think that it's been moving in this direction, but Putin's decision to invade Ukraine just tipped it and it won't tip back. Um, I think, interestingly, I, I wasn't surprised when Putin went in, but he's, I think he's made a strategic error that is almost impossible to recover from now, because what he's done is he'd enter, he's entered a country of 44 million people. They are fighting. He can grind them down, make, make no mistake about this. The Ukrainian people can fight and do a great job, but the Russian military has the ability to grind them down and ultimately control the cities, control all the power and whatnot. There can be a, a an insurgency that lasts forever after that. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if it does because half of Ukraine's borders are countries that oppose Russia. And therefore, you've got the ability to constantly move people in and out and weaponry and whatnot. But I think where we are is apparently... Um, Putin has made the decision just to press on. He's just going to kind of lower his head, gut it out, which means he's probably going to increase the use of firepower to try to make this go at least as quickly as he can and just take the, the international heat during that period. That's kind of an amazing decision because two things are happening. One, he's starting to get pounded economically. And then second, the West is coalescing against him in a way the West doesn't do very often. And if the EU and NATO and the United States can stay even slightly unified, Putin has now put himself almost in the Adolf Hitler camp. He can no longer pretend he's just a world leader. He, he now is, is being bucketed with those uh, horrific uh, leaders of years past. So I think he's made a strategic mistake. I don't know how he gets out of it. Um, I had a theory that what he was going to do is go a certain distance, and then he was going to declare success, pull back to the eastern regions, the Donbass region, say that these are in fact independent. Now they will align with Russia. And okay, Ukraine, I've taught you a lesson. Don't do that again. But, he's, but he hasn't done that yet. 
and it appears that he's either got his ego or or whatever, and he's trying to actually physically control the entire country, at least for some point. But that's going to be hard to do, and he doesn't have near enough troops to do that perfectly. You know, he's got 200,000 troops involved, and to control 44 million people, you're going to need several times that. Um, and so that the scope of this, but that's where I think it is. Could it go to nuclear war? The answer is yes. I don't think that's the, the most likely thing because Putin gets nothing out of nuclear war except destroyed. So very interesting. Stan, another of our audience members is asking, tying your comments on Ukraine back to risk. How do you think about that risk when it's so dynamic? That is risk for Ukraine versus for CXOs at large companies versus risk for NATO versus risk for China, for example. They're interlayered and overlapping, but not the same. How do you think about that? I think the first thing is to step back and understand, just as you said, every organization has a different risk. For the for the nation of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people, the risk is that the West is going to start to accept this as a fait accompli and they will lose their independence and Ukraine will become a satellite of Russia. So Ukraine has got to keep it on the, the TV screens, got to keep it in everybody's mind. And it's got to try to push the West into greater and greater involvement. Um, hence, they wanted the Polish jets to go to Ramstein and then fly in because they want the West in this. And, and I would too. The Russians, of course, what they're trying to do is not let Ukraine slide into West, Western Europe. And yet they'd like to do it in a way that that avoids being uh, boycotted economically and all that stuff. For us, the risk is a little more subtle. In a very clear way, we don't want a nuclear war. We would like not to be in a shooting war with Russia. So there's a desire not to push too far. On the other hand, you have the risk of appearing to allow it and appearing weak. And if that happens, if the United States and Europe make a lot of noise, but then just don't do anything, in fact, our effectiveness over time will, will be degraded again because we were sort of puffed up and not stood up. I think that for Europe, of course, the danger is that we we make a lot of noise against Russia, but then we don't really do enough. And therefore, Russia, with control of energy supplies and whatnot, can punish them, which has internal political challenges as they go. I think the the biggest risk, in my view, is allowing a Vladimir Putin to be perceived as having more power than he should have and the ability to invade his neighbor. I think if, if we go back, I think the one that the world cannot live with is that. Obviously, Estonia, Latvia, and with Lithuania, Poland, all live in absolute fear of that. Because if they feel that the West has decided to live with a resurgent Russia under Putin, then their independence is absolutely at risk. And so, I think that's the one we've got to all say, is that a real threat? If we think that's a real threat, we've got to start. That's the unacceptable threat, in my view. But there are just so many different ways. Now, I'm sorry, to, the last thing you mentioned on businesses, you can tell people right now are doing two calculations. There's a, there's a risk to your business in Russia and Europe, but there's also a risk to being politically out of step with society. You know, and, and you're selling Big Macs in Moscow and people go, no, you shouldn't be doing that. I think what most of them are doing is trying to move with the herd cautiously. Some of them are trying to move with the herd, but be able to to step back in if the opportunity arises pretty quickly. I don't think under a Putin led Russia, it's likely that it's going to be very acceptable to step back in anytime soon. One of the. It, frankly, it's been really remarkable to see the the role that businesses have played uh, and the technology executives have played in exerting pressure on Russia and turning off operations and, you know, iPhones not working there anymore, for example, based on uh, decisions that Apple's made just to offer one one example uh, of many that can be 
put here. Uh, technology executives also, like like many people who've joined us today, uh, also have a, a, a bigger role to play for some of the potential cybersecurity risks that will only grow uh, as a result of what's happening here. I wonder if you have any perspectives on that, Stan. Sure, on on because you've hit really two things there. The first is, you know, I own a company, and if I go out and I'm very political, there's a risk that some of our clients won't like what I've said or done, and and that'll hurt our business. And so, if I step back, I have a certain fiduciary responsibility to the people who work for me and whatnot, not to do that. On the other hand, I have a certain moral responsibility. I got to look myself in the mirror. I got to look my granddaughters in, in the face. And I've got to do what I think is right. And I'm, I'm always balancing that. Now, I've got a small company, it's, so I don't have a bunch of stockholders and whatnot. But, but it's a very real calculation. I think what we're seeing now on that level is really, really interesting. Because if we make the decision to take hard lines with people like Putin's latest action, I personally think that's great. But if we turn that and say, well, what about people dealing with China? Think over the last 10 years, we've had a number of instances, the National Basketball Association, where they've retreated very embarrassingly. And some other companies have done the same sort of thing where, you know, when a, uh, a nation like that puts pressure, the business folds. I think we're going to see more of this in the next few years, uh, time and time again. And that's going to put a lot of pressure on some of the globalization that we've had. It's going to put pressure on leaders as they make decisions um, that that run afoul of, and it may not just be Russia and uh, China, it may even be other countries where national elements start to put pressure on business leaders about decisions like that. Stan, another of our audience members mentioned that he just read Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets and uh, draw so, some, some uh, similarities between that book and your own theses and asked the question, when we make poor decisions and they turn out badly, as with the group that you led that was so risk averse, can you get caught in a trap of not making as good decisions because you fear the bad outcome that you experienced the last time around? How do you think about times when you or any of us make a good decision that turns out poorly? And how should we react and move forward from those kinds of experiences? For those of you who haven't read Annie's book, you should. Because what she does is she basically makes the argument that we need to think in terms of probabilities. And if you make a decision that is a rational decision with a, a realistic, you know, a reasonable probability of success, and it goes badly, that doesn't mean it was a bad decision. It just means there's a certain amount of randomness in, in things. The way it played out for us was I had this organization that was naturally averse to failure. They weren't averse to physical risk. They were averse to the risk of doing an operation that failed. And so they, they always wanted to try to mitigate all their risk to zero, but we couldn't do enough if we did that, which meant that I had to be willing to accept a pretty significant percentage of failure, meaning, you know, someone who's a professional poker player understands that. And so they factor that in. Uh, business and military leaders don't always factor that in. So when they make a decision on something that can be affected by the flap of a butterfly's wings, you know, in Argentina and can cause it to go bad, they never say, you know, that was a good decision. It just didn't work out. Everybody wants to look at it and go, now, it must have been stupid because it didn't work out. On the other hand, you know, Peter makes a decision and it's ridiculous, but he just is dumb luck and it works out. And so we say that was a great decision. And so I think what we need to do is come to grips with the reality that if we're going to be effective over the long term as a poker player who, who does it for a living has to be, we got to go in probabilities, accept that percentage of failure, but be very honest with ourselves of whether, yeah, it was a good decision and it just didn't work or whether it was a bad decision. You know, again, we have confirmation bias on our decisions. If it worked, it's brilliant. And, and we kind of live up to that ourselves. I and mean, when we teach, we convince ourselves and we try to convince everybody else uh, that it was as well. 
Dan, I wanted to ask you, I, I, by coincidence, I happened to just uh, finish a, a great biography of uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, as well as um, the autobiography of, of Grant, which some say is sort of the gold standard for presidential uh, autobiographies. I certainly understand why now having read it. And it was fascinating to read about former generals uh, who ended up as presidents of our country, in each case during trying times, obviously the former uh, uh, during the early stages of the Cold War and uh, the, the latter, um, I'm doing that in reverse chronology, of course, uh, um, at the uh, soon after the Civil War. Uh, and some of the advantages, obviously there were the, the unique attributes of two great leaders who translated, most people would agree into two great presidents, um, I'm curious, I'm going to come around and ask you whether or not you have any political uh, ambitions and maybe you'll, I, I'm curious if that's something that's ever been of interest to you. More generally speaking, I wonder at a time that is so fraught geopolitically and at a time, frankly, where we're very divided, not like the civil war, that was a, a different level, but rather divided nevertheless, whether you see, uh, any advantages in having somebody who has given as you have, uh, to this country in taking on a role like that? Yeah, I'm going to answer this in several things and, and be very candid with everybody. First is, there are cases where a retired general ought to be elected president, if it's exactly the right person. You could argue that Dwight David Eisenhower was the right person. Grant was a better president than they give him credit for, but he wasn't a hugely successful president. You know, obviously, George Washington was a successful president, and uh, but every case is different. So I would say, ask what a military person brings, and you can't look at retired general, therefore. You have to look at that person and see what qualities they have and what experience, because just being a retired general is no guarantee of anything. I think that we got to be very careful that we never think that it is, because if we do, then somebody starts bringing a bunch of retired generals in to solve problems in parts of government, and you don't get a good outcome. And, and we know that. The other thing I'd say is military service should not be a road to political power. Now, I've got nothing wrong with somebody going in the military, serving a few years, and then going on and doing things and then getting into politics. That's great. And there will be the occasional person that goes all the way to senior levels, general officer, and gets into politics. Okay. But if we start viewing a military career as a natural path to political power, then we become Pakistan. Um, and we don't want that. Then two things will happen. One, you'll start getting different people in your military. You'll start getting people who come because that's a path to something different. And you'll also have a very different political environment. And so I'm very much a believer that Soldiers are soldiers, sailors are sailors, Marines are Marines. And only by exception should you have one, you know, move into that level. Again, I don't say never. I'm just saying that, you know, we just need to be cautious with that because it, it won't be really good for either institution. Well, General Stan McChrystal, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Congratulations on yet another great book. Uh, really, it's a fa fantastic read that I, I would recommend to everyone. Uh, I'm honored to call you a friend. I'm, I'm so pleased you would take a, a little bit more time to enlighten us here today. Thank you so much. Well, thanks to everybody. Peter, special thanks to you, my friend. Uh, excellent. Have a, have a wonderful day and, and uh, hope to speak with you again soon. Perfect.